Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out all of my reviews in written form, over 4,000 of them to choose from at Quipster.net. That's Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R dot net. It not only includes films of the 1980s, but current films as well as classics that predate the 1980s, so I hope that you'll check it out there. So, as far as today's film, this is the third of the Shrinking Person 1980s films. It is The Incredible Shrinking Woman. We've already done Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Inner Space. So, this will be the third and the final one that I'm going to be doing for now. And this is a film that I haven't seen. I watched it a lot. It came on cable. We had HBO uh, way back when, and I would watch this all the time because, you know, it would show three times a day every few days. So this is one of those films like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that I caught a lot as a kid, but I haven't watched it since I was about 11 years old. So I was intrigued to see whether it held up in my mind and whether it aged well or maybe just thought it was funny because I was just a kid and I was excited to see movies at that age, at home especially. That was pre-VCR for us. It's a comedy, primarily. It does have some science fiction elements, and it stars Lily Tomlin, Charles Grodin, Ned Beatty, Henry Gibson, Elizabeth Wilson, and many others are in the supporting cast. It's a PG-rated film. There's some innuendo, some language, and it runs an hour and 28 minutes. Joel Schumacher is the director. Yes, that one. Jane Wagner provides the screenplay. It takes elements from the book The Shrinking Man by Richard Matheson, as well as The Incredible Shrinking Man, the film from the 1950s. And as far as Joel Schumacher goes, this is actually his debut film as a director. He became a future A-list director, one that didn't get a lot of respect, generally speaking. But he actually has made a few good and interesting films over the years, even though he's made quite a few clunkers as well. Before this film, Schumacher had primarily earned his name in Hollywood as a writer of urban comedies like Sparkle, Car Wash, uh, one of my favorites as a kid, and The Wiz, another film that I watched incessantly on cable. He took over the reins of The Incredible Shrinking Woman from John Landis, who was the slated director. Reportedly, John Landis walked a few days into the shoot when the studio wanted the budget slashed. After Lily Tomlin's previous film, Moment by Moment, bombed critically and commercially, it made the studio very nervous as far as whether she was going to be of box office appeal. This one is scripted by Lily Tomlin's collaborator and her lover, eventual wife, Jane Wagner. Wagner also wrote and directed Moment by Moment, so that's another reason they were a little bit afraid. And as I mentioned, this one takes a modern spin on that 1957 film, The Incredible Shrinking Man, only this one has much more of a comic twist and involves a parody of marginalizing domesticity for women, especially in the late 70s, early 1980s. As far as that goes, the satire only goes so far. However, as much as the film deals with the silly shenanigans and attempts at sitcom-worthy antics, it's not very different from the kinds of things you would find on network television most nights of the week. So it's a movie that had star power, but it felt like a few episodes of TV comedy come to life. As far as the plot goes, it is involving a passive suburban Southern California housewife and mother to a couple of exceptionally obnoxious children. Her name is Pat Kramer, played by Lily Tomlin. 
And Pat finds herself getting smaller one day, apparently caused by her own genetic makeup, as well as exposure to a slew of various household cleaners, various chemical ingredients in those cleaners and other products that result in a biological chain reaction within her and causes her to shrink. Because of that shrinking, she becomes an overnight celebrity around the nation. And though she's wasting away, no fix in sight. Not all of the attention, though, is beneficial because a secretly sinister group of underhanded political agents called the Organization for World Management, they think that they can make Pat a guinea pig in order to test her, perhaps work out a serum that will make the entire world smaller through the drinking supply, except for a few elites like them who will stay large. And that will make this group have easy dominion over the miniature populace that they've given this serum to. As far as the film goes and my critique of it, I do think that maybe it's needless that Lily Tomlin takes on multiple roles in this film. In addition to playing Pat Kramer, she has a sizable supporting role that incorporates her consumer product-minded stage character from her live stage performances, Judith Beasley. There's also a cameo role for one of her laughing characters that she created during her tenure there on television, Ernestine the Operator. Also, when this film played on television in the early 80s, there were some extra scenes that were injected into it, including one where Lily Tomlin plays Edith Ann, a young girl character that she also created for Laugh-In. So she does play quite a few roles in this film, but the strangest thing about the inclusion of Tomlin playing her own main character's neighbor is that there's no one who even comments about how the two women are complete dead ringers from one another. You have to kind of suspend your disbelief, and it would have been nice to at least include the fact that people understand that they are women that look just like each other. Maybe they could have been twins. I don't know. But it's never explained in this film, and so it's just part of the cavalier attitude toward filmmaking that they have here. The release date for The Incredible Shrinking Woman had been planned for the prior year, 1980, but had been pushed forward by the studio because they hoped that Lily Tomlin's box office rep would be reestablished by the December 1980 release of 9 to 5. It was a pretty good move because 9 to 5 would be the number two film at the box office for the entire year of 1980 as far as films that were released in 1980. And the only film that would make more would be the mega blockbuster The Empire Strikes Back that year. So 9 to 5 was a huge hit. She had some momentum going into The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Joel Schumacher, he shows early here his penchant for vibrant color schemes. He opts for a great deal of pastel shadings. There's a lot of pinks, a lot of yellows, and a mix of other very striking colors throughout the feature. Lily Tomlin actually in interviews compared the look of the film to Neko wafers. So if you know what those are, you know exactly the kind of pastel colors you're going to get here. This is a film that sometimes stumbles over its own tone, trying to balance the comic timing because they have to mix the effect of Pat's smallness In addition to Tomlin as Pat trading back and forth in conversation with herself as Judith, her neighbor, and that results in occasional awkwardness of the pace, never really quite allows the comedy to zing when it should when they keep having to edit all of these pieces that they shot separately together. As far as the looks of the films goes, on board is Rick Baker. He's that legendary makeup and effects guy. Here, He already had used a simian suit in his work during 1976's King Kong, the remake, and Baker appears here as Sydney this gorilla. A very convincing suit. I mean, it's not 100% convincing, but for the comic purposes of the film, it works really well. He does a great job there. 
He would go on to work with the original director of The Incredible Shrinking Woman, John Landis, that same year in An American Werewolf in London, for which he would take home an Oscar for his makeup effects work. Although the effects of the film, other than what Rick Baker brings to it, have not really aged well, there are still some highlights. There's a scene in which Pat falls into the garbage disposal that's on the verge of getting used that creates a little bit of tension for us in the audience. There's also an appearance by Pat Kramer on The Mike Douglas Show because of her celebrity status. That's another real delight. And the climax of the film that involves Sydney, the gorilla, it teases something actually more interesting, a, a different way that the film could have gone. But the laughs, unfortunately, through the final third of this movie are largely absent because Tomlin takes a back seat to the technical aspects of the production, including some very large props in order to give Lily Tomlin the appearance of miniature size. In fact, anything that has to do with the plot of having to get the serum from her, that really offers mostly tedium. Zany scientists do what they can to extract Pat's blood, despite the fact that it has already been established that her situation is wholly unique to her own biology, as well as the, a perfect concoction of chemical-based products. So I don't know how they thought that they would actually be able to create this serum that would work on everyone when it was unique to Pat. And also, if you're trying to pick apart the logic of this film, it kind of falls apart because... We already established that her blood would certainly have already been in the possession of this organization, given the amount of experimentation that they used in order to undergo with Pat in order to find out the root cause of her malady. And the ending of this film is also particularly abrupt. It's not really satisfying. In one way, you could say it sets up for a sequel. Sequels weren't as popular back then as they were today in terms of setting up. So it's just kind of an ironic ending, but it just doesn't feel... Like, it's a really good payoff for all of the setup that we had before. The pleasures of the title gimmick, The the Shrinking Woman, they're mild, but they are there. There are a few genuinely clever laughs in the film. I don't want to go overboard in saying that this film is without merit. I actually do think that there's some really good funny moments in this film. But those moments are sporadic, but they will appeal to people who love these kinds of comedies, especially for fans of Lily Tomlin's brand of character-based humor. If you love Lily Tomlin, I, I do think that this is definitely something you should probably check out at some point. I think the main issue for me in terms of why I can't quite give it a recommendation comes from the tempo, the tone of the film. It offers a lot of noise over the wit. There is wit there, but I do think that it opts for noise a little too much. It never really settles into a defined groove for most of the runtime. It does have that amusing premise. It has a very solid cast here. I love Charles Grodin. I think he's funny. I think Lily Tomlin is also funny. But somehow there are a lot of undercooked ideas they really offer a lot less to chew on than the satire would indicate because that satire that's in there seems to want to regard the diminishing view on society for homemakers. It gets put aside for a lot of silly shenanigans that have nothing to do with that, unfortunately, for most of the runtime. And even given the film credit for the satire, the diminishing role of women in society, especially as homemakers, the metaphor is something that the film itself and the dialogue pains itself to point out throughout the course of the movie. So even if you're trying to watch this on multiple levels, it points out all of those themes with a neon sign flashing right before you. There's also some satire that could be made from the unhealthiness of everyday consumer products that purport to make life easier, but unfortunately it's making your health probably at risk. And while the rest of this film doesn't generate the kind of laughs that I think most people are going to expect from a team-up of Lily Tomlin and Charles Grodin in this very high-concept comedy, I think that in the end, it's an odd mix of bite-sized idiosyncratic ideas that never quite size up into a satisfying kind of tall tale that's worthy of a talented comedic cast like this one. So all in all, it's a very mixed bag for me. 
It's one I can't quite recommend. I do think that there's an audience out there that will appreciate it primarily of Lily Tomlin fans or just people who like the zany comedies of the early 1980s. But even though this was a film that I really enjoyed when I was 11 years old, I don't think that it quite holds up as the kind of classic comedy that so many other 1980s comedies have turned out to be. So I'm going to give it two and a half stars out of four. I think that's a fair assessment. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I think that it's a middling effort. There's good parts, there's bad parts, but all in all, I don't think that it really works all the way through as a comedy, especially that final third that seems like a dead end, unfortunately, in terms of where things go. But I'm glad I did get to revisit it. I probably will never revisit it again, but I do think that it is definitely worth a look for those people that I mentioned earlier. So I hope that you enjoyed this review of these films that I grouped together in terms of people getting small in comedies. I called it Let's Get Small. That's in reference to a comedy routine that was done by Steve Martin back in the 1970s, a very classic comedy routine. So there's a little homage there for us Gen Xers. As far as what the next group of three movies I'm going to be covering as we're getting into the holiday season, as I'm recording this, it's almost December, but I'm going to be looking at three well-known Christmas movies of the 1980s, and we're going to start it off with arguably the best of them all, A Christmas Story from 1983. And I hope that you enjoy those sets of films as much as you enjoy the previous set of films. And as we get into the new year, if you have any requests as far as what kind of movies that I cover here on Around the World in 80s Movies. Obviously, I'm looking at films in the 1980s and also those films that influenced the 1980s as well. So as long as I can kind of package a theme together, I will be able to cover a wide array of movies throughout the decade. It's a decade that really formulated a lot of my opinions about movies and what I consider to be good movies. And so many of my favorite movies still today came out in the 1980s. So I'm looking forward to delving even further into the decade and providing those for you. I do want to mention my other podcasting work. You can also find new reviews of brand new movies on my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Any place you're listening to this now, do a search for the Quipster Film Review Podcast and you'll find me there. Also, I'm the co-host of the Extra Film Segments of the In Session Film Podcast, a very popular film podcast out there. It is excellent. I'm very proud of the work that not only JD and Brendan do there, but my contributions to that show. It's something that I regard very highly, so I hope that you'll check those out. Go to InSessionFilm.com for more details on that. Until next time, thank you everyone for joining me on this journey around the world in 80s.